Wunderkind Research reveals exclusive insights from over 100 leading B2C e-commerce brands, suggesting we are on the cusp of a golden age of marketing. Head to wunderkind.co forward slash future commerce to get the report. Hello, and welcome to Infinite Shelf. This is the human-centric retail podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Ingrid Millman-Cordy, and I'm here with the lovely, stunning, sensitive, oh, thoughtful, and and very, very, very fun to hang out with on a podcast, Orchid Bertelson. Oh, well, and you forgot someone who just consumes a lot of kombucha because we were talking about that earlier, like how much kombucha is like too much kombucha to consume. And I don't know that we've settled on an answer. So yeah, I mean, you're going to have to have a personal conversation with your gut and your, <laughs> and your intestinal tract for that answer. But I will say be cautious of the sugar intake is my no. only. I, and coming from a also a kombucha fan. I love, I love a good kombucha. But uh, this is turning into the goop podcast, by the way. <laughs> well, you also have to watch like the hidden alcohol content. Like I'm not, <laughs> not trying to get kombucha wasted on a Tuesday afternoon here. Oh. So, oh, see, that's where you and I differ. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm pregnant. No, I'm kidding. Um, I, I have been limiting my kombucha intake, but I have still been drinking some kombucha. Come at me. Anyway, so I'm very excited about today's episode. We are on our continuous journey through the D2C life cycle, which happens to, for better or worse, align with our life cycle, right? Like it's D2C companies came around and grew in popularity as we were establishing our professional careers post-college, all of the D2C companies that you all know and love and have followed and have loved or hated or all of the different emotions associated, um, we grew up sort of in parallel to and certainly being in digital media, working at startups, corporations, all of the like, we've seen quite a lot of the D2C journey. And today's episode, we are talking about the midlife crisis of a D2C business. And so... The idea is that at some point in your life, you kind of take pause, you take a beat, you figure out, okay, well, I went from stage one and I, now I'm in stage two. What is, what is stage three or four going to look like? And I think that it's really funny because I'm kind of in that place career-wise right now, um, just you know, in terms of what, what's my next challenge. But then also, I think a lot of D2C companies either are here now will be here in a few years or have gone through it. And so I think it's a really fun topic to to explore. Orchid, what what can I what have I missed? Uh, well, as someone who's also deep in a midlife crisis. <laughs> I think I think I think your point is right on. You know, you you spend the first few years of your life just trying to make sense of the world and then you reach a point where you're not you're not just trying to survive anymore, right? You're not just trying to get that first job out of college or even, you know, make sure that you can pay your own rent sort of thing. And and you get to this point where you just ask the question of what do I want to be next? And I do think with D2C growing up, you know, I, I actually don't know what how you describe 2022 is like, we were in a recession, we weren't in a recession, but at the end of the day, it wasn't about growth. It was about profitability. And so 
you know, I think the days of cheap CPMs are far behind us for a variety of reasons. So the atmosphere in which DDCs could just launch and grow huge in IPO, like those are just going to be few and far in between. So I'm sure a lot of D2C businesses are asking that question of, what do I want to become? How will I measure my life? <laughs> and yeah. just trying to understand what the options are. Totally. And and even to add to that, like, what is my legacy, right? I think a mm-hmm. lot of what D2C, and we've talked about this in detail, is what it had introduced into the consumer market was this idea of the humanization of brands, of this brand is a person has a tone, has a, you know, is it three-dimensional, four-dimensional being. And so I do think that more so for D2C companies than traditional companies, the idea of what your legacy is, how you made your mark on your category, on your industry, on your target audience matters a lot. And so it's really, really similar to like the human piece, right? You're like, am I, am I raising good humans? Am I creating, Mm -hmm. have I decided to create humans or am I, you know, thinking about all of those things? And so one of the obvious things as we think about de- really pure play D2C, particularly the ones that have started in the past like five years, they're in this place now where they're trying to figure out what their next step is in terms of like ownership, right? So do you sell to the large corporation? Do you IPO? Do you, I don't know, are we still talking about SPACs? I think sometimes we're still talking about SPACs. Oh yeah, that was a thing. That was a thing, but I think someone just IPO'd on using a SPAC. Um, And so, you know, all of these options are now available. And so having gone through being a company that was acquired and then also just sort of seeing some of the inner workings of corporations that were the acquirer, I just wanted to, I thought we could talk about that today. How's yeah, I think, I think that sounds great. That feels great. Um, or it just might be the two kombuchas I've consumed already today. <laughs> it's great. Uh, it's great. My stomach feels great. I have <laughs> yeah, so much gut health. Um, you know, my question is, when we think about exits or when brands think about exits, um, do you think that they try to match the exit with like a values conversation, right? So meaning, or do you think it's pure capitalism? And I, and I know it depends on the brand, but I could see how a brand who's very values driven, maybe, you know, given around sustainability, they say like, oh, okay, I want to IPO because I can, or I want to grow because I can make a bigger impact. Now, mm-hmm. some brands are born out of white space and it's, you know, primary, um, objective of the founder might be to just make a ton of money and that's totally fine too. Uh, and so in your experience, like has, has the idea of values come, come into play when it comes to determining what type of exit you want as a company? I would say yes. Um, having come from a company, so noon hydration, everyone knows I came from there. We were acquired. Um, it was an incredibly values-driven company with the leadership that was very values-driven. But it's interesting because it was values-driven in some of our work toward like sustainability and ultimately trying to encourage people to live healthier lives powered through movement. And in order to move better, you had to stay hydrated and like be hydrated efficiently. 
a component of that was also just reducing the amount of single-use plastic that you would use, um, like in a Gatorade, for example, or in a ready-to-drink. It's also less, you know, of a carbon footprint when you're shipping out these like 10 tablets and a little tube that you then put into the water so you're not shipping heavy water across the, the country or the world. So there were all these like elements to the actual product and the product positioning, but there were also these value elements to the way that we treated our employees. Um, and so there was a heavy, heavy emphasis, like as part of the leadership team, there was a heavy emphasis on equi- like equitable pay and being transparent in our pay structures and in our leveling, being transparent in um, our how we're hiring, like our hiring practices. We would, you know, do a lot of things like removing people's names from resumes so that we can just look at the the actual talent and and look try to not um, give in to like even just our subconscious prejudices. Um, and all of those things. So, you know, it was kind of this big piece of values that I think that there was an intention. And and frankly, I, I think that as we were getting acquired, there were acquirers, right, like in the in the process that saw a ton of value in that, right? Like not just internally, but externally and telling that story. And that was sort of built into our valuation. Um, and there were some acquirers that just like did not it wasn't part of the equation. It didn't matter to them. They didn't see the value in it, all that kind of stuff. So I think as the company going in to be acquired, yes, that was definitely a part of it. And a lot of the questions that we had to the acquirers was, you know, are these like, how do you treat the employees? What's the process? All that kind of stuff. Okay. That's super helpful. That was going to be my next question is that when you're fielding, if you're lucky enough to field multiple offers, does, you know, being able to an acquire, being able to maintain the culture and ethos and values of the brand come into play. It does. It does. Um, I will say that, and this isn't specific to my experience, but just having even other people I know that have gone through the experience, there's always a limit, right? Like <laughs> people put their money where their mouth is. And so if they want to acquire you and they offer you a substantially higher number than everyone else. Um, I would imagine that, you know, your shareholders, your private equity investors, all of those people have a say in, you know, just how much your values are worth. Oh, that's very Kendall Roy of you. I'm not caught up. I have like one episode left. You mean no the spoilers. final episode? Yeah. Okay, I won't say anything else. Okay. But, but I mean, that's not out of character. But no, that's no. helpful because, yeah, I do think that um, there are so many considerations when it comes to an acquisition offer that aren't really talked about, right? Because at the end of the day, your unit economics still have to work. You still have yeah. to have a healthy business that the acquirer believes that they can scale. Right. Um, I don't think, well, there are some instances where, you know, smaller investors will buy something because they just want to run a lifestyle business or they just want to run it themselves. But when we're talking about, you know, multinational corporations or larger corporations, you know, usually you got to make sure that you've got a healthy business that you can just put your resources against in order to grow. I will say that most companies, when they acquire another company, like they're not built for corporate turnaround of any kind. Yeah. And so having that healthy foundation is extremely important. And maintaining it, Mm -hmm. I think, is even more important than being able to maintain it. 
Wunderkind surveyed over 100 senior marketing leaders at leading B2C brands to get their outlook on the current state of marketing. The in-depth CMO State of the Union report explores how unique challenges like the pandemic, supply chain issues, and the death of the cookie have forced CMOs to throw out their playbooks and reassess their priorities. Read the report to uncover insights and opportunities for your brand. You will gain a better understanding of the current marketing landscape and how it is evolving, giving you a valuable edge to inform your future marketing, product, and communication strategies. Head to wonderkind.co forward slash future commerce to learn more. If we, you know, we have to assume that some of the folks listening to this show are in fact D2C owners or are on leadership teams or have some important say in what the next step for a D2C company is. Based on your experience and also all of the things that you've read about the industry, what do you think is some advice that you would offer if you were sitting on the board of a D2C leadership team that is about that is about to hire the bankers to go for, you know, being putting themselves on the market? Like what are some of the things or pieces of advice that you'd want them to consider? Um, well, on the acquirer side, there's always this idea of buy, build, or partner, right? When it comes to new capabilities or how you want to expand your portfolio. And so I think as someone who wants to sell a company, I would want to be very clear about what I'm offering to the acquirer, right? Am I going after a portfolio company where, you know, my business will be able to help with their strategic roadmap? You know, let's say a company wants to, if we go with food food and bev as an example, because that's where my experience is, you know, are they trying to fill a gap in their portfolio? Is there, is the market uh, kind of moving to, let's say like a healthy or like clean ingredient Mm -hmm. direction and the rest of the portfolio isn't that clean? So can you fill that gap? Right. Or do you have something proprietary that's maybe, you know, some kind of advanced data analytics tool that will be able to help that company get a better read on the market in order to better help their innovation as an example? And so beyond kind of like the business fundamentals, I would almost be say like, all right, it's kind of like marketing all over again. How are you? What is your product? Right. So what is your company? How do you want to position it? And then what audiences are you going after? So the audience targets, I'm putting this in air quotes, could be a portfolio company. It could be private equity if that's what you want. Um, but what does that look like? And then another aspect of this, in, and I advise on a couple of technology startups, <clears throat> is also the idea of an aqua hire, right? And so for the leadership team, if they get acquired, are they willing to work for that parent company, right? And for how long? Because that's a very big piece um, of the equation as well. I'm so glad you touched on that because I think that that's like the very foundational piece of this larger, I would say, like hierarchy of decisions that you make about what does a post-acquisition D2C brand look like? Like what are the things that you're selling, right? So you can, you'll have that foundational piece that you're talking about with like the, the product and where it's unique in the market and it's moat and it's, you know, how it is going to help the acquirer and their strategy to do X, Y, and Z. That's sort of the foundational piece, but then the pieces that need to sit on top of that are all a part of the puzzle, right? So it's like how many and who on the current 
team and how they function need to stay on and for how long and in what capacity in order to continue making what is happening happen. And I think that that's a really important question for like founders actually themselves to think about and weave into the dialogue of the conversation and weave into the deal. Because I think often that responsibility to make those decisions about how do we carry something on and how do we not break what we just bought um, tends to fall much more on the acquirer who frankly, even the most well-intentioned, well-positioned, well-experienced acquirer, you know, there's a reason why acquisitions don't have the most fantastic reputation for succeeding post-acquisition. I do think that a lot of that is because too much emphasis is put on the acquirer to solve those problems after the fact. And I think that my advice, and it's really similar to yours, is to have the founder or have the people who are running that D2C business think about what is like that secret sauce of the company. And and it it certainly starts with what the product is and what its place in the market is, but it by no means ends there. And like all of the, the supporting elements around it are just as important as, yeah. a, as the sum of its parts. I agree. Uh, did you watch Emily in Paris? By the way, I'm about to make an analogy. I saw the first season. I kind of hate watched the first mm. season. And then I think I that's the only way myself. to watch it. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I guess it's spoiler alert for season two. I think it's season two. So do you remember the fashion designer Pierre Cadeau? Yes. So he ends up getting acquired? Yes. Okay. I actually don't remember which season this is, but they the, the new parent company opened his stores and basically created holographs or holograms of him. Oh, he hated no, it. But of course they did. Okay. So um, that's that's <laughs> that's actually a warning, not the holograms. But if you're a founder and you're selling, what you also have to be emotionally ready for is if the parent company starts to make strategic decisions about how to use the brand that you wouldn't necessarily agree with because it's not yours anymore. Right. right. Post-acquisition is not yours anymore. That's why they paid you the money. Totally. And, and you know, I know that's like a very unpopular kind of harsh thing to say, but it's true, so true. is that at, when you're in those negotiations, like kind of having the mindset of, okay, I'm about to cede power and control over this thing that I've created. And sometimes your name is even attached to it. Like that has to be an emotional thing that you're ready for. Big time, big time. And I think the more emotional and connected to its consumer the brand is, the more important that that is. And if you think about the legacy brands, like the real legacy brands that have stood the test of time, they're still all privately owned. Patagonia. (laughs) Patagonia. And even like in the higher end, like Chanel is still privately owned. Um, Prada is still mostly privately owned. And then you actually see the contrast with a Gucci, for example, that is not privately owned, still has like a a strong family interest and and all of that, but is is owned by, what is it, Curing? Um, And they have a lot more of a tumultuous relationship between their like commercial end and their couture end and how those two interact. Like the creative directors have left for, for a lot of different reasons. And, you know, there, that tension, I think, with being a private company and being 
owned consistently throughout a family or through a trust or whatever it is, um, makes a huge difference. And I think it's a lot easier for brands to maintain who they are without being acquired. Now I have a counterpoint. Oh, please. <laughs> if we're talking, if we're using Gucci and Chanel as the examples, my counterpoint is that I believe Gucci today ha- is better positioned for innovation and fluidity in redefining their brand than Chanel is. I think that's a very fair point. And I would say that's more representation of the changes in creative direction right now. So like Karl Lagerfeld having past and then, um, you know, having new, new faces and new, or not, not new, but promoted faces as the, the lead creative direction. Um, and this is, you know, I, I don't want to turn this into a fashion uh, podcast, but don't, <laughs> tempt, me. don't tempt me with a good time. It's <laughs> um, but I, I agree. And I think Chanel has always struggled with, you know, having its feet grounded in legacy and also being relevant. Um, but I will say that, and this, so when Alessandro Michieli came to be the creative director at Gucci, I think it was in like 2017 or something like that. He completely resurrected the brand. It was like not very, you know, it was always like a heritage brand and people always had a ton of respect for it, but it wasn't cool. And he made it cool again. Um, he has since left again because of some conflicts with the commercial end. And I, I cannot comfortably <laughs> say that I am in the market for anything Gucci right now because it is so incredibly commercialized. Like it just doesn't, it's lost its thing. It's like when, oh. when Phoebe Philo, it's like when Phoebe Philo l- left Celine, like it's, there's no, there's no comparison. That's a, you know, I, I have a different relationship with Gucci because little known fact, but when I had my quarter life crisis, I actually quit my law firm job and <clears throat> became a sales supervisor at Gucci in Tyson's Corner in Washington, D.C. Oh my God. Which is where I fell in love with marketing. So that's, that's for another time. But there is this special place in my heart for Gucci. And the fact, and I agree that they're very commercial right now. They've gone very extra. They've gone, you know, very maximalism. There's, there's a part of it that I don't know if it's just my emotional tie because it was very, uh, it was a very key part of my development and my career where yeah, I will. And it's a hell of a place to learn how to build a brand. It is. <laughs> But you I mean, know, like, in, a, in, a, in an excellent way, like in the in the most positive way. Totally, we'll have to do an entirely like luxury fashion brand episode coming up. Oh Me as God, the consumer, you, and I you get as <laughs> <laughs> we'll save it for our OnlyFans, maybe. <laughs> but yes, okay. Please finish your thought because I'm I'm curious about like so the the Gucci piece. Like you understand that they're more. Um, commercialized but like where's that going how do you how do you fix that without like another brilliant creative director coming in and being like absolutely not oh no I mean it's not bad (laughs) no it's not bad it isn't and it's highly profitable actually I I am not familiar enough we should come back and look at like how they're I, I would I if I had to wager a guess they are performing exceptionally well and they are probably more profitable than they ever have been, right? <laughs> but they wouldn't be in this position to capture all of this commercial 
mass attention if it wasn't for the like five, six years ago when all the cool kids rediscovered Gucci and made it cool again. And so you you can't, there's only like a certain amount of time that you can be on that commercialized wagon. And this kind of goes back to our our profit and and growth conversation, right? Like you, the growth piece where you had to invest and they're hiring, you know, Jared Leto and like every single Billie Eilish, all these like celebrities to, to wear them head to toe um, and take over the Met Ball and the whole thing, the Met Gala. But the then you can then sit for a couple of years and just like rake it in because then all the more basic and more all the more like accessible, still very expensive, but more accessible looks like not so much the fashion, but like the things that they that are the highest margins, like the small leather goods, the bags, the belts, the wallets, all that kind of the shoes, like the loafers and all that kind of stuff just become omnipresent. And that's when you're really making a lot of money. But I would strongly argue that you can't have that without that massive growth phase. Yeah, I I think that's right on. And I think why this is why we haven't gone on a tangent, this is relevant to our conversation is that when you go through an acquisition, I think most people do think about scale, right? It is about bringing it to the masses. And so there are a lot of brands out there that are pretty precious about the audience or customer base that they have. I've seen it. We've been a part of him. Uh, there was a, an ice cream company that, you know, or an ice cream brand I had worked on. And, you know, they thought of themselves as as a luxury good. And I was like, hey, at the end of the day, you're like $6.99 on promo at Kroger. So, like, I don't know how luxurious we can talk about affordable luxury. And so, again, like, that is something that that inherently changes is that a lot of D2C brands have a very specific, focused customer set at the very beginning of their inception. And they can be very core to that consumer. They can continue to, you know, just continue to sell to them. But with growth comes mass, more mass opportunities. You have to be more approachable. You have to be more accessible unless you are a true luxury good. And so, you know, you got to be prepared for that as well. No, I I agree. And I think in the topic of like acquisition and where that responsibility falls i think it i think it's on both right because no one is going the the acquirer no matter how much due diligence they do they're never going to fully fully understand what makes your brand yours um and so it is up to the brand that is being acquired to fight and sometimes fight like hell <laughs> to make sure that the the acquirer understands and all of that and so um and again, this isn't just from my personal experience. This is from other people and and just like reading case studies and things like that. So it's not, we are by no means just talking about the, the noon acquisition, but just having lived through it, you know, part of it is is just figuring that out. And and again, I actually do like having having the perspective now, I do think that the right thing to do for noon at that time was to be acquired and to be acquired by such an incredible CBG force like Nestle or Nestle Health Science um, because they were able to fill in some of the gaps of scalability and things like that. But I think you, you can't have one without the other. And so that would be my sort of dual recommendation to, to piggyback on yours to my advice. Yeah, I have a question. So now that you've been through the process, was there a question that you wish you had asked during any part of the acquisition process that you didn't know enough to, or, you know, maybe didn't get the opportunity to? 
Oh, it's such a good question. I mean, it it all it all relates to to this, right? So like figuring out what the team structure is, what the, you know, piece of the company it, whether it's employees or whether it's certain parts of our values um, that they are looking at as part of the business model, right? Not just like the margins and things like that, because we all know they're already doing that um, As and building that in and figuring out what the investment strategy is, where they're going to go from growth to profitability. And, you know, we were actually sold as like a, we were already good on that. We weren't, we didn't go crazy. We were very like responsible with our spending. Um, but just figuring out like where on that pendulum of growth and profitability they saw us and how we were going to meet our scalability goals based on how they were going to now operate us. Oh, that's great. Do you have any advice for people going through this process? It's, um, it's definitely an exploration in, reflection and like getting down to brass tacks. So yeah, I think um, the advice that I would give or, or the part of the experience that I want to share is that it's definitely an opportunity for the company that's being acquired to get down to the fundamentals of what their business is beyond the unit economics and, and their, their market share and all that kind of stuff. Because I think that's that's very obvious the less obvious things of like, well, this person kind of always comes up with this messaging that just seems to resonate or this, you know, this part of the country we've tried and tried and tried. And for some reason, our messaging isn't resonating. We've decided to sort of not focus there and just focus on our strengths or just like those little things are just really basic examples are things that should be coming through in your questions to potential acquirers, to your conversations with your bankers who are helping put together the storyline and the and everything that you're going to market with, as well as um, in your like management presentations to the people who are interested in putting in a bid. So uh, this is this may seem like a very basic question, but what exactly is the role of the banker in all of this? Oh, um, it sounds like- broader than what I initially thought. So they're like the matchmaker kind of thing. Um, They will help you put together the story of your business in the context of being acquired, right? Which is different than the story of your business when you're telling it to a consumer or even an investor, probably closer to an investor, but more so on the acquisition phase, right? So they're going to help you tailor that. They're also going to help a lot in your valuation. Right. So like how what the actual um, scope is, like, are you going for X amount of 3X or 15X annual revenues? 70X. 70X, (laughs) baby. It's not (laughs) software. I mean, Jesus Christ, I'm totally in the wrong business. Um, But yeah, so things like that. So they'll help you sort of rationalize. And they they also, being in the acquisition banking pool, it's kind of a small network and a small world. And so they will help you um, with a little bit of inside baseball of like, oh, this company sold for X amount, like information that they probably know because they know someone that knows someone um, 
but like just stuff that will help you reframe a narrative, look at numbers in a different way. They're kind of just like your your partners. They're the intermediary. And then I think that they serve the same purpose for the acquirer, right? Because they want to, they, they have their interests in making sure the acquirer is happy because they're also their clients, right? And they, they will, they are building their reputation. And so actually in all of this, the, the main thing that I want to say is like, the people, the bankers that you hire, the people that you hire to help you be acquired is another huge, important decision. Like they have to know your business and see the vision and see the purpose and and be your champion just as much as the founders. Like they cannot be in it just for the everyone's in it for the money, right? Like, don't get me wrong, but like they can't, that can't be the sole thing, right? They could be like really great at that, but they have to also just really embed themselves in your business. Like these are people you're going to be on the phone with at 6am before an 8am call and like putting together a deck and making sure, you know, they're your partners. And so you have to have a good working relationship with them. You have to build a good rapport with them. You have to trust them. They have to trust you. It's, it's a really, really key partnership that, a huge piece of advice would be for founders and, and people that are in this phase of their journey to to consider deeply. And how do you find one? Do you Google them? <laughs> no yellow pages. Like, how do you find one? I I am not the expert in this, so I I don't know the exact answer. But I know that there were like a few different bankers that were willing to, it's probably like an RFP kind of thing, right? Mm. Where you're like, oh, I think, and then everyone, everyone sort of like your investors and and your board members have these networks because that's kind of like what they do, right? And so I would imagine that that's your first place that you go to and see like, oh, here's our network, here are options. You start and you start dating them and like seeing which one is a match. And then, but doing that work up front and really finding the right bankers is is really important. Yeah, I was going to go with probably advisors, um, board of directors, because yeah. the the couple of startups I've advisor to, they will send investor and advisor updates, and I think the strongest ones usually have a section called title asks right? Or requests. And then, you know, a lot of those connections or requests for connections take place there, which has always been very helpful, I think, on both sides. Love that. Love that. Yeah. I think another thing that the bank had done was they helped do some like media training for some of our leaders, which was great. Um, So yeah, you know, they just kind of come in and they see where some of the gaps are and like your storytelling or your messaging or whatever, and they help you there. So they can be a huge part of, of a successful acquisition. This is fun. I like talking about the acquisition stuff. It's a little like inside baseball and the secret sauce. That's because you like talking about money. (laughs) Just kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) You're not wrong, but it's not the only thing. (laughs) Peak capitalism. No, I think I think it's great. I mean, you know, this is why this episode was so exciting for us to record, is that a lot of DTC brands have done gangbusters. They've been so successful. But 
you know, different economic environments have kind of changed course or, you know, they've always had maybe had an exit in mind or maybe the founders want to do something else. And so I think like just that question of what do I want to become as a founder, but what do I want my brand and company to become is such a key one. And of course, beyond acquisition, there are so many other uh, options, but I'm, I'm really glad that we saved the space to talk about this. Me too. Me too. Super fun. And as always, I am constantly looking for feedback and questions. And I actually think we're going to throw up a little request for AMA for questions. We'll do a little a little solo hang or, or dual hang, whichever, um, and answer some of your questions. It could be about this episode. It can be about D- D2C in general. It can be truly anything about digital retail media or digital media. Um, and I'm we're, we're here for you. So if you like the show, please do all the things like subscribe, follow, tell a friend. Five stars. Five stars. <laughs> Five stars are best. Um, and and <laughs> Pia um, from the podcast, Everything is the Best Except When It's the Worst is one of my favorite podcasts. She always reminds her audience that shitty comments are for shitty people. Oh, and- that's true. I love that. I love <laughs> I that. Love that. And that doesn't mean I, I, we're not, we, we want to hear your credit, you know, not your, the your negative, ones. not the shitty <laughs> ones, don't be shitty. but if you have some actual advice or some things that you'd like to hear that we're not giving to you, please, the only way that you can make that happen is by sharing. So please do so. And thanks again, Orchid for hanging. This has been so fun. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.